the key is vaccination. I think that is the single biggest key. If we get enough people vaccinated. I tried to use can, a syringe as my key the other day. It just got broken in my car door. So no, I don't think the key is vaccination. I think you have that, a syringe. Well, I was trying to use the vaccination as a key. Mm. That was a metaphorical key. You oh, okay. A metaphorical vaccination. I'm sorry. Totally mixed my metaphorical vaccination key. Sorry. Sorry about that. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. Yeah, we are. We need to talk about the news a little bit, I think. Sounds good. There's lots of news to talk about. We've got lots of stuff to talk about. The employment situation summary came out. That's the news. Yep. We have a summary on employment situation, and now that has been summarized in the least informative way. It came out from the U.S. Department of Labor, too. Right. And our, the March 2021 employment situation summary, if you read it in detail, is a little confusing. Uh, during the month of March, total employment in the United States rose by 916,000 people, which is cool. Except for the fact that the short-term unemployed at 2.2 million uh, remains constantly and constant, and we still have about 10 million people unemployed in the United States. It really boils down to we had about 916,000 people enter the workforce that had been out of the workforce that came back into the workforce and went back to work. The number of unemployed stayed pretty much constant, even though it's really 6% instead of 6.2%. There's still a lot of people out there unemployed who don't want to be unemployed. By the way, when, we, when the unemployment rate comes out, that is just the people who want to be employed, who have looked for employment actively in the last two weeks and are still unemployed. That doesn't count all the people who haven't looked for, who have given up looking for unemployed, or look, not unemployed, who've given up looking for employment, who temporarily stopped looking for employment, who a whole new series of other things. We, we've come a long ways. That's the other statement of the year. And we're making some progress in the right direction. But we still had about a million last week alone, week of, the, week of March 27th, we had about a million people laid off in the United States. That's pretty impressive. Contrast that with typically it was around 200,000, 250,000 before that. Uh, and it's, it's, and then we, we say we had about a million people laid off. There's no official number on that. What there is official numbers on is the number of people who applied for unemployment insurance, both at the federal and at the state level. And by the way, the people who apply at the state level, that's the standard unemployment. That means you had a regular wage job. You're being paid by the hour, your own salary, and you had a layoff. You weren't fired. Uh, but the, uh, the, the there was about uh, 700,000, 719,000 people who were laid off during that week, which is up by like 53,000 from the previous week, which is not a good sign. Uh, but there's also, what ha so where, where did I get up to a million? There's another group of people who don't qualify for state unemployment insurance. That's the people who are operating on contract work. Uh, the people who are doing whatever it was and they had a contract or they're, they're called independent contractors. The contracts may be in verbal. People who are working in construction very commonly don't get paid salaries. They just, they just work as long as the job is available. And then when the job ends, they get laid off, but they don't officially get, they're not able to apply for unemployment insurance in many cases. 
those people are able to apply apply for the special pandemic and unemployment insurance at the federal level. And when you add all those together, it comes up to about a million people got laid off. So we're still having companies fail, companies that are no longer able to keep their employees on board. Uh, even though we've gained total employment during the month we're and we're recovering, we're on the way to recovery. We're not there yet. And that's an important thing to recognize. I'm looking over at, at uh, ADP's report. Because while you said we don't have any official numbers that say anything about what how many people were actually laid off, you can start to gather more information by looking deeper, deeper. And what we're seeing is, yeah, there were layoffs this this time around on the private sector. But when we're looking at overall employment changes, this is uh, from February to March. There were 517,000 new people hired in the month of March. Uh, so that's the change in the U.S. non-farm private sector in employment as representative by, represented by the companies that ADP provides payroll services to. Yeah. There's no question that there are people being hired. There's also no question people are being laid off. And there are more that's people right. are being hired. More people are being hired than are being laid off. And we're turning, we're turning around. The point is that the official 719,000 that were laid off contrasts with the fact that we typically, in a week before the pandemic, were having a couple of hundred thousand, 213,000, I think, was the average that right. were being laid off in any given week. And now we have, we have more than three times that number being laid off each week. That indicates there's a lot of stress still in the economy. A lot of stress. And there's a lot of places that I can see anecdotally this stress occurring. So the supply chain issues that we talk about regularly about shutting down plants because they don't have enough microchips or uh, restaurants not being able to serve a food item because it was readily available, except it's not anymore or uh, trying to get a specific fill in the blank. It's almost random where we could have a supply chain issue. It's it's across the entire web that we have as of supply chains. That shuts down businesses. We also have businesses that in the United States that are supporting businesses in, for instance, Germany. Germany and Italy are going back onto lockdown again. So when you get locked down, you don't order the same parts from the same places. There is a snarled web, which is still causing a lot of layoffs. There's a lot more hiring than there are people being laid off. But the amount of people being laid off is a lot higher, a lot higher than what we're used to seeing. In fact, it's higher every week than the worst part of the Great Recession. And this is every week for more than a year. And this is when people are worried about on, uh, about. Uh, inflation this is where we can point back again and again and again and say right now we are floating these people on taxpayer money that is not going to continue forever which means that we're going to have to figure out how to deal with this huge amount of people that want to get back in the labor force that by itself sucks inflation out of the system when people aren't working, they're not making as much money as they were. And I get a lot of people were saying, 
But wait, the, the stimulus checks. Yeah, they may temporarily make more money unemployed than they would employed, but nobody uh, thinks that it's going to be reasonable to continue to pay them forever at a high level of unemployment. That has to stop at some point. There are people that want it to continue, but it has to stop at some point. Nobody thinks that it has a reasonable chance of continuing forever. Well, the stimulus checks came whether you're working or not. I mean, in the stimulus stimulus checks in unemployment, there were right. there's additional federal un, unemployment that's being added right. on top. That's what I mean by stimulus checks. There, there's, yeah, there's lots 300 of three hundred dollars, three hundred dollars of additional federal money coming in for unemployment checks. But as, as Jake said, there's a lot of people who are unemployed who want to be employed who can't find a job, and it's going to be the key is vaccination. I think. That is the single biggest key. If we get enough people vaccinated. I tried to use a syringe as my key the other day. It just got broken in my car door. So no, I don't think the key is vaccination. I think you have a syringe. Well, I was trying to use the vaccination as a key. Mm. So that was a metaphorical key. Okay. Metaphorical vaccination. I'm sorry. Totally mixed my metaphorical vaccination key. Sorry. Sorry about that. Go ahead. But it's really important once we get above about 85 or 95 percent vaccinated, presuming we get there, then at least theoretically, according to all that we know about infectious disease, the infection rate basically dies off and we can get back to normal and people can start going out comfortably going out to restaurants and doing a lot of things they weren't doing before. And we get to hire back a lot of people who aren't working right now. And let let me say this quite clearly. You and I are both vaccinated at this point we've gotten you got double shots from pfizer i got from moderna we got to experience the side effects or lack thereof and now get this we're hugging each other again we are hanging out with each other at each other's houses again we are talking i'm going to be traveling next week this is what happens when people feel safe doing it it is still i mean the the airlines still require you to have testing done before you get on unless you can show that you've been vaccinated so there are a lot of things that are restricting travel most of it's psychological it really isn't the government restricting it very much at this point it is a psychological restriction if you really want to travel you can but we have a psychological restriction until we're vaccinated. The same is true across shopping, eating, all of the habits that we do. We have this massive psychological reason not to do it until that reason goes away. And that's it's an important thing to understand. Oh, do you, do you see what's happening in China right now on their vaccination attempt for their recent outbreak? No, I didn't see that. They're going to vaccinate an entire city of multiple million people because there was an out, a small outbreak in the city. And that's an extremely effective way of, of keeping your economy running. I, last week I was saying I, I was worried about the Chinese economy going into the future because they're exporting their vaccines. They're not vaccinating their public. They don't have big outbreaks right now, but it's, they're going to get one eventually if they don't vaccinate. And then they had an outbreak and they had a bunch of vaccines waiting just to come and fire with a shotgun to everybody in the city. That's not possible 
to do in the United States in the same sense because the government controls the corporations in China versus tells the corporations what to do in the United States and sometimes the corporations say no you don't you're not the boss of me in China if you say you're not the boss of me you find out that yes they are the boss of you and you're going to have to sit in a jail for a while because they're the boss of you so they have some techniques that they're using that they are waving the flag saying, see, we have a better system. Well, I think we have a better system, even though we can't come up with a citywide vaccination in the spur of one weekend. Uh, I think it'd be nice to get to a point where we have the capability of doing that. And if you look at the amount of vaccine that the United States is putting out, if we wanted to choose a city and do it that way, we could have. We just, just for the people that are statistically minded, we have put out, we have more people vaccinated in the United States than just about the rest of the world combined. Now, we have more people that have gotten the sickness than a big chunk of the rest of the world combined, but still, it, we, this is part of both the strength and the weakness of how we do business in the United States. It's like herding cats, but each of the cats is more productive more creative man i'm messing up the metaphor I'm, how do you go from herding cats to making them scientists this is well bringing the subject around to the results of that there's something called the moody's u.s news i think it's no moody's cnn back to normal index and moody's puts together uh moody's analytics which we have probably greater trust in than, than any other economic organization at least i do i, I agree uh, they, with that their current value, their back to normal index is 87.1, whereas last month it was 85.3. That basically says they've taken everything that's going on in the economy, the number of people reserving restaurant seats and the number of people flying on airplanes and the number of people doing a lot of things and come up with an index and says hundred. when we hit 100, we're back to normal. We're at 87.1. In other words, we're about 13% below normal activity in the United States. Economic activity in the United States is what generates money. It's what it generates uh, the percentage of growth that we have in the United States. So we're getting there. We're getting there. And the fact that we're coming back from where we were, which was, I think we were down in the low 70s at the worst of this. Uh, so we had a 30% drop in economic activity. And, you know, people throw that term around lately. We don't have any other period in history where we were able to measure this kind of drop this fast ever in the history of the United States. The fact that we have sustained through it is through a combination of Republicans and Democrats ripping each other's throats out, but somehow still passing stimuluses throughout this to keep our economy capable of recovering quickly. We've said this lots and lots of times. The worst thing you can do to an economy is to stop it and then start it and then stop it and then start it and then stop it and then start it, which is what they're doing in Europe and to some extent what they're doing in China. It's what causes the snarled up, messed up supply chain when you do that stop, start, stop, start. It's what causes physical machines to not work properly at these positions. So what we're doing is the right approach as completely chaotic and disorganized as it's been from the beginning to now. 
it still seems to be working. You got a question from Tom. He specifically addresses it to me. He says, reports are that 75% will be maxed, 25% will be vaccinated in the United States. He said, Jeff, how do you think we'll get to 90% in your comment? Well, for starters, a lot of people have had the disease and some of them don't know they've had the disease. We won't get vaccinated. So we'll, if let's say 75% of the people get vaccinated. And yeah. we have another, we have another five or ten percent in there that uh, that had got the disease. the disease and didn't know they had the disease, or even if they knew they had the disease. The other thing is, once you get up to that seventy-five percent level of vaccination, and you find that people are not getting sick, and you had a longer period of time to, once you get a, a large number of people that do something in the United States, almost almost without regard to whatever it is they're doing, a uh, very small, very significant number of people wear pants in the United States, and People who don't want to wear pants uh, gradually come around to wearing pants. Uh, that's kind of a rough and, and crude yeah. analogy, but the but bottom line: people is, do it, people change. Yeah, and and once I think I think that's the twenty five percent who won't get vaccinated. That is their opinion at that particular moment, but that's not probably their opinion further down the road. I think yeah. when when you got, I've already talked to people. I've already talked to people that said, "No way am I ever going to get this vaccine." That just got it. Yeah, and, and the point it's is not once, just one person. There's more than one person that I've talked to about that. A lot has to do with whether you know somebody who's gotten very, very sick from the from the disease from COVID nineteen or not. And if you don't know anybody who's gotten really, really sick from COVID nineteen, and you think, okay, I don't trust the vaccination because I saw someplace on Facebook that it was dangerous, and you run into the problem. The other thing, the third thing is. Uh, there's something called a vaccine passport that's becoming more and more popular that enables, for instance, if you wanted to travel to another country right now, you have to have almost without exception in the United States. If you want to go to Hawaii, for example. If you can't prove that you have had a vaccination, it's very, very difficult to go to Hawaii. Uh, if you wanted to go to many foreign countries, it's, a, it's very difficult to go to those foreign countries unless you can prove that you have had the vaccination. I think that's going to have an effect, too. Yeah. I think there, there's always resistance to vaccines when they come out, even the polio vaccine or whatever it was. But over time, they decrease. Do I think at 75% we'll, give, we'll be getting close to what's called herd immunity because of the fact that people have uh, already, as many people have already had the disease and they've affect self, been self-inoculated from the disease. The other thing is when it starts, when you know, we had several people, I don't remember the number, I think six people, Several people in Dell County died last week from COVID-19. And the thing is, the, the people who are dying from COVID-19, the people who are getting very ill from COVID-19, are trending younger right now in the United States. And the main reason they're trending younger, well, there's two reasons they're trending younger. One, the new variant that's, that's traveling around right now has a greater uh, impact on younger people. And the second one is the fact that older people have a higher vaccination rate. As soon as you know somebody that's your age, it's gotten very, very sick or died or had long-term disability from the disease, you might change your attitude towards the vaccination. And I think that's generally what will happen. I think we'll get there. I think it'll probably be at the earliest. I want to make a wild guess. I've been saying Labor Day. Labor Day is probably a good shot when we get to the point where the, va where the vaccine, the vaccinated people and the people who are immune because they've already had the disease reach the point that we begin to see a dramatic fall off. By the way, we've seen a recent uptick in the number of cases in the United States and in the number of deaths in the United States. Whether or not that's a significant change that we're going into a fourth wave or not, we'll have to wait and see. 
Uh, we've got a couple of more questions here uh, from Philip. Thank you, Tom. That was a great set of questions. Um, Philip comes in and says, I'd like to get your professional opinions on the best way to fight slash protect slash insure my money against the impact of inflation on a personal level, or can you? Okay, so that's the first question. Let's hit that first. The very, very simple answer to that, and it's very simple. This is something, and we're not recommending this as a general vehicle, but if your entire goal is to protect against inflation, there's a vehicle for it. It's called the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, TIPS. These are issued by the U.S. Treasury, and they change the amount of interest that they pay based on the, uh, the consumer price index. That is how we measure inflation. So a lot of people say go to gold. That doesn't work. There, there are studies after studies after studies. I mean, there's more studies on this than you can count easily that show that gold is not a good inflation protector. It still has that legend about it. I don't know why it still has. People keep saying it. Uh, gold is not a good inflation hedge. It's, it's far more volatile than inflation is. Uh, the other thing that traditionally has done a fantastic job of protecting against inflation means that you're not using, it's not applied to money, rather to ownership, and that's the stock market. So it's not like having your money in a bank being protected against inflation. You've converted it to owning something that is changing the way it does business with the time so that it stays, uh, presumably stays profitable while inflation is going on. If you look at the stock market returns during the era of really big inflation, you just see that the returns got really big, even though the real returns when you pulled inflation out are the same average they've been all along. So that's two kind of approaches to that question. It looks like you've got something too. Well, and when you talk about stock market returns, let's talk about portfolio returns in general. If you have a well-diversified portfolio, the other thing you have to understand is the best way to prevent inflation from taking a bite out of you is to have something that grows faster than inflation or something that grows with inflation. For right. example, things in general, things that you own, tend to rise with inflation. That's not, a, that's not an absolute statement. Some things don't. They decrease with inflation. But if you are well diversified in, in appreciation assets, then you probably will do well going into inflation. Appreciation not, assets are assets that are doing things. You own an asset that is producing something of value that people are paying for and trying to do it better every day. We consider that an appreciation asset. The key is whether you're looking for preservation or appreciation. If you're looking for preservation, obviously uh, the, ob the object to maintain the buying power just barely. Actually, you won't quite get there. You'll, you'll lose money slowly over time. It, those inflation-protected treasuries Tips. will theoretically maintain your buying power with inflation. But the problem is long-term. And wait, wait, let me let me cover that when you said it, you're going to lose money over time. You still have to pay taxes on the interest that you're earning, even if it's interest that is earned at a higher level because we have inflation. So savings, to be ultra safe, if you pull inflation and taxes out of the mix and say, all right, these, let's take this out of the return you're getting in a bank or in a treasury or in a tip or whatever, 
you're going to find that it's almost always a small loss because you're paying for protection there. And I'm not recommending in any way that people stop using banks. In fact, it is an absolutely necessary primary part of any kind of long-term plan is to make sure that you have enough in those mildly losing positions to take care of emergencies and so on. And that's just the way things have always been. It used to be you could see it clearly because you would go to a vault and say, I need to put my money here. And they would say, this will be X amount of dollars a month to hold your money. If you go to, to a safety to deposit box at a bank, you got to pay money to do that. That is the standard throughout history. We call it today a negative interest rate, but that's the standard throughout history of you pay for safety. In the United States, banks are still profitable enough making loans that they can pay you and still give you safety. This is not normal throughout history. It's normal for the last 100 years or so, but not normal throughout history. So people just need to hold that in their mind. Expect to lose money against inflation if you're keeping the money safe. Even in a tips, there's no way to completely insure against it. Um, All right, so next part of the question, I think this is the stuff that you and I can both get excited about because it's not a technical question about a vehicle that could help, but rather about what it is that we're talking about. His question is, can you describe the correlation between inflation and devaluation of our currency And are there any measures to protect ourselves against these events? And I am going to give a round of applause Inflation is the devaluation of the currency. Oftentimes when people say devaluation of currency, it's some kind of a um, conscious, active event that a government actually planned and said, we're going to devalue this currency by this amount. That's not how we do it in the United States. Our currency is devalued through inflation or it's cre- it is given more value through deflation. And, and people that are not familiar with de- deflation immediately go, oh, well, that sounds great. We could have more value in our money except that your employer would pay you less money because the value of the money is more valuable. And if you have a mortgage, then every month's payment gets more expensive if the value of the money gets more expensive and you're getting paid less. So deflation is a lot more dangerous to the economy than inflation. Inflation is not good, but a small amount of inflation is actually the economic world, that is considered good. It means that we're not in deflation and we're not in runaway inflation. Somehow we've hit the Goldilocks zone for the past decade or so where we're running at just a little bit above zero inflation. This year we're above that and it's probably going to be above that for 2022 as well. But it's hitting the target that the Federal Reserve set. So how do you protect against this? This kind of goes back to that first question. The things that protect your assets against inflation are the creation of value. That's what you should make a profit for. If you go to work and you're not creating value, you're going to get fired. That's a protection against inflation is creating value. You will continue to get paid 
what you're worth even when the value of the money that you're being chained being paid in changes if you're a great employee and we have runaway inflation then they're going to be raising your pay every week uh, if you're a horrible employee you'll just get fired <laughs> so if you're a decent employee then they'll raise your pay and you may lose out a bit on inflation if you're owning assets in the market and those assets are creating value, it's that same concept. They're building value faster than inflation. So looking back at the end of the 1970s and into the 1980s, if we think about how bad the inflation was, we're talking about 20 and 30% inflation, really bad inflation. And then you see a stock market return of 26 to 36% in the same year. So that's obviously well diversified and we have to be careful about this because you can grab one stock and that gives you absolutely no protection against anything except that you have one stock. So being diversified is important to understand throughout what we've said there. Inflation is basically when we've all agreed to pay more for things than we did before just because. And it's mostly psychological. There's a really amazing study where the study was actually done on a governmental change in currency in Brazil. And it is groundbreaking stuff. The, the real was going through the roof inflation-wise. The grocery stores were having to change their prices on the aisle constantly. It was an Absolutely, they couldn't keep up with the price changes because the inflation was running so high and they needed to raise the price or they wouldn't be able to buy the replacement or make a profit. So the government mandated, and they did this with six economists that were American-trained economists from Brazil, and they came back and they said, we're going to try this thing because it looks like it will work. The government mandated two price tags, one for an imaginary new real and one for the one that people were using. And they did it for a year. And the price tag on the imaginary new real wasn't changed at the same time as all the others. It had a stable price. It was imaginary, but it was stable until it stopped being imaginary. At the end of the year, they switched to the new real and inflation went away for about five years. Because people were convinced that the real, the new real, was stable because it had been stable for a year, even though nobody was using it. Inflation has a huge psychological component because the more you believe that inflation exists, the more you buy the thing today because it will be more expensive tomorrow. If you bought it today, that leads to them having the ability to raise the price tomorrow. Hey, people are buying it today at this price. For in great numbers, we can raise the price and it'll be fine. Deflation has the same thing, and you can see that more directly in electronics, in that most people wait till Christmas to buy their electronics because that's when it's going to be cheaper, which forces the electronics to be cheaper at Christmas. So there's a loop there. It is a psychological loop, and that's what the, some of the keys to deflation and inflation come from. One of the things that prevents inflation is competition. For example, if you, we've seen inflation in things, for example, let's say television sets. Although the television sets really haven't inflated, they just increased in, in capacity. I, I don't know that they even call them sets anymore. 
Well, the the television screen TV, TV. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the point is you can't raise the price on them very much because for instance, if the Chinese major, let's say a major manufacturer in China says that people are buying our TV flat screen monitors and sound systems at record levels, let's increase the price. Somebody in China may do that and they may raise the price a little bit, but then because they're marketing in the United States, Samsung turns around and says, let's not let's not raise our price. Let's just increase the quality a little bit, but not raise the price. And it will put the Chinese business out of business if they if they don't lower their price back down. As long as there's healthy competition and there's plenty of supply against a relatively fixed demand, then inflation just doesn't take place. The other thing that's required for inflation to really get in place and start to affect us dramatically is increase in wages. Increase in wages occurs when you run out of people to hire. When there begins to be inflation, so the same amount of work done by a person, they get paid more to do the same amount of work. We don't see that much anymore. Very, very rarely do people get paid more just because they're there. They get paid more because they're doing more work per hour. So all the elements that historically, particularly back in the 1970s, generated inflation just aren't there now. Yeah. In in the 1970s, there's a different situation occurring. Uh, This is now... Uh, two decades after World War II, when America was at the pinnacle in the world as far as manufacturing capability. Everybody else on the planet had literally just been bombed into a place where they didn't have manufacturing capability, except for the United States. So if you wanted to buy an automobile, you bought an American automobile. It didn't matter if you were in Germany or if you were in Japan or if you were in Italy or if you were in Texas. If you wanted an automobile, you got an American automobile. The, the Italians and the Germans and, and the English and everybody else started their manufacturing, but because they had catch-up to do, they had to catch up in their industrial capability, they weren't building at the quality that was being built in the United States. And when Toyota first came to the United States, everybody looked at it and said, who wants to buy this junk? There were jokes about Japanese-made products being cheap the way that people make jokes about Chinese products being cheap. Every new manufacturing powerhouse gets those jokes made about them at the beginning. So two decades of this going on, the unions are at the pinnacle of their power in manufacturing, The United States has zero competition on the world stage for selling its products. So the union says, hey, um, if you want us to keep working for you, you guys are doing great. So we're going to just make these contracts where we get paid more money based on the amount of time we worked for you, not the amount of cars we're making for you. And that was locked into union contracts. There's still vestiges of that today. And those were decisions that were made in a very different situation. So as competition came up, we had to raise we had to lower our prices. It's kind of the end result was that General Motors and Chrysler went under. It took decades for it to occur, but those union contracts are really what pulled down General Motors and Chrysler in that they had made promises to people to pay for their health care for the rest of their lives because they worked for 20 years at General Motors at a time when General Motors had almost no competition anywhere. So that's that it was all built into why we had runaway inflation. 
because we were required through contracts to pay a large percentage of our population more money just because they were slightly older now. That led to runaway inflation. We And then since then, every time we get to a point where the businesses are really competing hard for employees, we'd start to get this inflation. As the world's economies got more and more intertwined, becoming more and more global, it became harder and harder for an employee in Texas to cause inflation because that employee would just lose their job and it would go to Thailand or to China. So now we have a setup where most of the manufacturing is taking place in China and the high wages that we have in the United States are not rippling across the economy because there aren't enough plumbers, there aren't enough electricians, and that's why their wages are going up. Not because everybody's a plumber now and everybody's an electrician, so everybody gets raises all the time. So I I realized that was kind of a long-winded approach to what inflation is. But I think it's kind of important to understand that it really comes back down to, to a pretty small decision-making process of one employer, one employee that ripples across. When people have an item of value like Tickle Me Elmo or Cabbage Patch Kids or we have a different one every year and I'm going back to old ones to date myself, those things can jump up in value and it looks inflationary, except it's simply due to a demand increase that didn't have a supply increase. So, and we're seeing lots of that in our economy right now. The supply issues are everywhere. When we see increases in prices in food, it's probably because we have to ship those foods and we see decreases at the same time in the same store with different food. It's because we have to ship that stuff and it's having trouble being shipped out. So the stuff that stays here becomes less valuable. And the stuff that's having trouble being shipped in becomes more valuable because there's less of it. So that's when people are measuring inflation and we pull out food and energy, it's exactly for that. Thank you. If you would like to join the conversation, we're taking emails at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com and we'll be back. And we're back with just a few more minutes of the Personal Wealth Coach. If you'd like to get a question in, now's a good time to do it. Uh, We have email out there waiting, jake at tpwc.com or jeff at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or thepersonalwealthcoach.com. We just got a thanks from Philip on answering the inflation question. So evidently we didn't mess that one up. You're welcome, Uh, Philip. Uh, what's your next subject? I, I had one on mortgages that I wanted to talk about, but, uh, I just wanted to give some good, more good news. The new vehicle sales are up to 17.7 million, which is pretty impressive. Uh, last month they're 15.7 million. So we're, that's an indication that people are doing something and we're getting across the economy. We're doing, we're seeing something that, that needs to be taken with a grain of salt. And it's one of the, it relates to the inflation area you were talking about a little earlier. We've had subdued activity in the economy, very subdued activity in the economy over the last year. And it was further exacerbated, that's my word for the day, exacerbated, uh, by the weather in February. 
we're going to see a snapback. We're going to see a lot more money being spent, a lot more things being bought. We're still not seeing a massive increase in people going out to eat and traveling and going to hotels and resorts. So they're focusing their money spending on things, which is going to cause a short jolt in the supply chain, which we're seeing already, and it's going to charge cause a short jolt in prices. That doesn't mean inflation is coming. The fact that the car sales are up dramatically and the prices of cars are up dramatically because of that doesn't mean that we're going to have a permanent increase in the cost of cars, although I think we will ultimately see an increase in the cost of cars as we move to electric. And people just get used to it. But you see, when you, when you say the new, let me give you an example here of something that is not inflationary but looks like it is. If the cost of a car goes up to an average of $32,000, which I think is pretty much where it is right now, you say that's a lot more expensive than when I could buy a car for $10,000 or when I could buy a car for $3,000. You're right. But how long did that car that you bought for three or four or $10,000 last before it wore out? And the answer is probably three or four years and you needed to get a new one because the old one was breaking down and falling apart. Today, when you buy a car, you expect it to last, now this is really weird, about 10 years before you need to get a new one. That means the price goes up by a factor of three. You're still paying the same thing for the car if you compare it to the cars that used to break down in three years. So a lot of things are changing, and you have to take all that into account when you talk about inflation. Of course, loans, you know, you don't, people very rarely pay cash for cars, too, or trucks or anything else. They generally take out a mortgage on the thing. It used to be called, we just called it a loan, but it's more like a mortgage. It's going to five and six years now. Because that's how long the vehicle is expected to last. And oddly enough, at least anecdotally, I'm seeing that a lot more people are paying off their vehicles rather than trading them before they're paid off, which indicates that people are, the vehicles are much higher quality than they were. So when you see something that's much higher quality, the fact that the price is higher doesn't mean there's been inflation. It just means that you're paying for more than you got before. I think you, you have laid that out. When, when we think about cars, this is this is maybe a big chunk. You you mentioned this in passing a couple of times. The quality of the car is better now than it was 10 years ago. It includes a lot of stuff that it didn't include 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Cars are pretty standard with airbags these days pretty rare to find a new car that doesn't have a button that rolls down the window for you. Uh, it is nearly impossible to find a new car that doesn't have heating and air conditioning. And I know all these things sound, of course they have this. Well, that's the point. They didn't before. So each car that comes out today has a lot more stuff in it than we thought was just the what was necessary before. What's necessary for today is we need to have, uh, by default, you're going to have seat belts in there. Let's go back. By default, your window in the front is not, your windshield is not going to shatter on impact. It's going to have shatterproof glass in it. Okay, good so far. Uh, airbags, how many? One airbag's kind of nice. 12 airbags is even better. How many new how many new cars don't have side impact airbags that So when you look at what you're getting for a car versus what the car's price is, what we find when we dig into it is that the cars 
have a lower price tag than they did 20 years ago. When we look at the you know new car coming out, $30,000, and we go, wow, that's big. How could this be lower? Well, there are mandates on what safety requirements are in there, and the mandates aren't from the government. That's the funny thing. The mandates from the marketplace. There's obvious mandates from the government. Yes, you have to have seatbelts. Yes, you have to have shatterproof windshields. But there's no mandate that says that you need side impact uh, airbags. You get a better rating when people are, are looking at your car. It's safer. People want safer. I know. It's weird. Why would they do that? So I think that's important when we look at the uptick in the values today I think car values are due for some ratcheting up. I don't like it because I'm obviously in the same consumer mode as everybody else. If I need to buy a car, I don't want it to be more expensive. But we've got supply issues that are messing up the supply chain. It's getting harder to manufacture the same automobile, which means it should have a higher price tag, hopefully temporarily, like you said. But it might be something that lasts longer. I think... One of the things we've noticed about electric vehicles, or even partially mostly electric vehicles, is they tend to last a lot longer than an internal combustion engine for a very simple reason. They have a lot fewer moving parts. Yeah. That's all those parts all those parts in the engine that move up and down and back and forth and fight each other. And I don't think there's any aren't there anymore. If you talk to any engineer, this isn't environmental mumbo jumbo stuff. This is pure engineering. If you talk to any engineer about the ease of manufacture, the ease of repair the long-term reliability, you're going to find that the numbers really clearly come up on the electric vehicle side far higher than on the uh, internal combustion side. Internal combustion, you have a lot of stuff in there. You have pieces in an internal combustion that are designed to get hotter. You have pieces in an internal combustion engine that are designed to cool things down that are too hot. So you're wasting a lot of energy there. And that goes across the board. So what are the, what are the what are the barriers here before you think that we're telling everybody to go out and buy an electric car today? Number range. range, uh the ability to refuel quickly. So but these are things that in the last decade the battery length of of operation has increased tremendously in the last decade. The speed of charging has increased tremendously in the last decade, which means that that issue of range, it used to be pure expense and range. Well, now if you look at the numbers on the expense during the life of a car, electric vehicles are cheaper. That happened in the last three years. So technology is moving ahead here. And and, and that the car manufacturers obviously know that they're spending billions of dollars on developing their own electric automobile lines. I don't know if you noticed, but in the proposed infrastructure bill that the Biden administration released, there's a pretty good sized chunk of money for creating electric charging stations across the country. The Chinese have already done that. We are way behind the power curve on it. That is not just setting up the power stations. You have to have the capability of generating the power have to have the capability of getting the power to the place where it needs to be used. And you have to have charging stations sufficiently frequently out there that they will be worth using. It took us 
about 30 or 40 years. I think it took 40 years to get enough gasoline stations set up that you could reliably drive long distances with a with a uh, with a gasoline powered vehicle without having to carry big gas tanks behind the back of your vehicle. That's the old tradition in Jeeps. And even though Model T's used to have a gas can on, on the rear of it, now it's a little hard on you if you get hit in the rear. Um, it's not good for your health. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. the reason they had those is because there was just a shortage of gas stations across the country. It took a long time to get the gas station system built up to match the car built up. And we enjoyed tremendous productivity gains when people could use internal combustion engines across the country. And this is one of the things that we learned through the great Texas freeze of 2021 is that even in a deregulated economy, when you have the power lines regulated, like how many power lines go to a house, one, well, that means it's regulated. Otherwise, you would have each company have their own power line. That would be a mess. Getting the infrastructure for the power lines to be decent enough for recharging stations everywhere is beyond a small business putting in a new charging station. Now you're looking at this is the power grid that needs to be changed. This is the absolutely appropriate place to put it in an infrastructure build because this will lead to better transportation in the future. Lots better. A lot of our post-World War II economic boom came from the interstate highway system. That was a federal effort. It was actually done as far as the defense. It was actually put in the defense bill to get around the Supreme Court decision. But it changed dramatically the way we do business in the United States and it kicked us into gear. Because President Eisenhower, a good, solid, conservative Republican, saw the Autobahn system in Germany and said, we need one of those in the United States, and he pushed it through Congress. I think we it's need- fascinating that the Biden infrastructure bill has exactly the same price tag that Donald Trump wanted a year ago. Yeah, I think I think that's one of those non-political realities. And we're out of time for this week. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we can actually give fiduciary advice when it's one-on-one. Uh, Our phone number locally is 254-947-1111. You can reach that same line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form there. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can read past newsletters. You can listen to our radio program going back lots, lots of years. Our podcasts are there. You can search for our podcasts on any search vehicle and find them. Until next week, thanks for listening. This has been The Personal Wealth Coach.